You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning and welcome to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Hamad Khan and uh, for the next two hours I will be your host live here on Weekend World. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday the 17th of September 2023. And here on Weekend World we discuss the week's news, we go uh, behind the headlines and we uh, talk about um, uh, talk about the week's news from an Islamic perspective. And um, I'm very lucky to be joined uh, on the line today by Dr. Abdul Alim and uh, Khalil Yusuf, um, regular contributors contributors to our uh, program here on uh, Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. Uh, and I think we have Dr. Alim on the line now. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Alim. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Ahmad. And uh, I think we're hopefully going to get Khalil Yusuf on on the line in a moment. Um, uh, just just working through some uh, technical challenges there, but I'm sure we'll have him on uh, in a second. And uh, Dr. Alim, just before we dive into uh, some of the things that have happened this week, just just a high level, really a, a couple of really devastating humanitarian um, challenges that that have um, arisen in in North Africa. We saw the um, the earthquake in in Morocco. Uh, last week, and then uh, we've seen the um, the devastating, really horrific um, uh, floods that happened in Libya as a result of a of a storm, a com- a, uh, an awful combination of um, uh, failing infrastructure and a, and a storm. Um, and it's 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 disturbing uh, both in terms of the, of course, the loss of life. And uh, the effects on on people on the ground, but um, but also how little these things get highlighted in in the media, and and obviously there are news reports out there. I'm not saying that, but uh, but in but in terms of if if it were a if it were a similar similar level of devastation in a in a country in in Western Europe or North America, I think that the uh, the amount of coverage we'd get in the media would be would be significantly greater. Indeed, I think that uh, uh, particularly, I think the Libyan situation is very, very dire. I think mm. it because uh, it is compounded by lack of access uh, because of the warring factions mm. in mm. Libya, mm. and so it, it adds tragedy upon tragedy in the sense that people have suffered deeply, yeah. and yet um, it is almost impossible to reach them mm. because of the ongoing tensions. Yeah, so it's I think. Uh, you know, most we uh, people who have worked in the in the area of disaster management usually say that the disaster essentially is a natural calamity, but it becomes a disaster because of human mm. factors. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, if yeah. if you are well prepared, uh, it's not a disaster. It's but not, yeah. if it's not well managed, then it does become a disaster. And um, I think there's a uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, just just to add to this. Um, that, that there is, of course, an overwhelming issue with climate change mm. showing its face in different parts of the world. You know, last yeah. year, Pakistan had huge floods. Yeah. And I think the Libyan situation, that's also another factor that we need to think about. And really interesting and a, and a lot to un, a lot to unpack there, especially in terms of Libya and the recent... I mean, we can go back to ancient history as far as Libya is concerned, but the, even the recent history of, of Western interventions in Libya and the, and the consequences now. Um, I think we've got Khalil Yusuf on the line. Khalil, uh, thank you for joining us today. 
Assalamu alaikum. Uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, always a pleasure, Khalil and Dr. Ali. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to jump straight into it with uh, with the first point of discussion. And um, Khalil, you, you highlighted for us a, um, a, a couple of really interesting articles, <clears throat> excuse me, which are which have uh, come out in the press. And, and I think recently, for anyone that's been watching the news, and there have been, um, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the United States about UFOs, about unidentified flying objects, so that whatever the new acronym is around that, and, and some discussion around um, the uh, the the attribution, what, what, the, the evidence that's being presented, and, and where truly there's been no clear explanation of this. There's been discussions in in um, in the U.S. government around this, and and there was a, a presentation by a a Mexican journalist and ufologist, Jamie Morsan, who claimed to have evidence of alien bodies found in Peru, and he has gone through and presented his his evidence of this with some um with some desiccated um bodies that he claims um are a, a thousand years uh, year, years old and can't possibly be human in origin or or or, or earth-like in in origin uh, i mean th- this this chap has been um uh, his claims have been debunked to to to, to some degree, but I, I guess what it highlights, not wanting to get into conspiracy theories here, in any way on today's program, at least, uh, what it highlights is that there is a there's a lot of discussion around this. A lot of um, I guess a, uh, also a, a a human need to understand what there is out there in the universe and and whether or not there is a possibility that uh, humanity is or could have been um visited by by aliens in in uh, in any way um and and what that could what that would look like if that were the case and um also there's a there's another article which is fascinating um the the Hubble telescope has um managed to find evidence of um uh, of molecules on a on a planet 120 light years away from from earth uh, molecules that uh, would normally be suggestive of of life. Uh, no, uh, molecules that here on Earth, at least, would only be produced by uh, living organisms. So it's a really fascinating couple of points. And uh, um, uh, uh, Khalil, because because you raised these as as um, interesting articles for discussion, I'll ask for your opinion on this. Uh, first of all, I mean, I mean, I guess my first question is going to is going to to be to you that do you. I mean, w- what are your thoughts? Do you think that there is uh, the possibility of of life out there, and and do you think it's uh, do you think there's any possibility that that life could have um, touched down on, on Earth at any point? Well, I do think that there is the possibility of life. I can't say whether that uh, has touched down on Earth or not because it is you know beyond human capacity to understand you know the uh, infinite nature of life and infinite nature of God's creation. Uh, obviously, as people of faith, we believe in God, and God is finite. You know, he has no beginning, no end, and that also means that his creation has no beginning, no end, unless the Holy Quran or uh, we have guidance from the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, or the Promised Messiah, Islam, then we, we are not in a position really to to know what God's creation uh, comprises of. However, Hmm. the Holy Quran uh, gives us guidance on this point. And in fact, there are a few verses 
within the Holy Quran that speak of the existence of life beyond Earth. And as a result of that, it is because of that that uh, we believe that there is a prospect of life on other planets, and so much so that, in fact, the Holy Quran suggests that <clears throat> mankind will at some point have some contact with life on other planets. What form that takes, uh, we don't know, but <clears throat> the, the Holy Quran is, is pretty clear that there is a prospect of life on uh, other planets and that life is not just limited to humans and the creation on Earth. Dr. Alim, I think <clears throat> people may find it surprising that Islam has or the, the Holy Quran has any opinion on the possibility of, of life outside Earth. And I guess from a from a religious point of view, it, it presents um, challenges, as it were, because as, as Muslims, we believe that um, the message of Islam is a universal message. It's a message for all of mankind, and that there have been many prophets throughout history that have brought individual messages to individual nations, but they but that Islam was the was the culmination of of God's message to the entirety of mankind, and uh, and in that respect, a, a, a perfection of of um, God's message to humanity. Um, the, the nature of any intelligent, sentient life outside of Earth would uh, surely mean that they would be significantly different to humanity, and and therefore um, would be subject to different. Um, uh, social mores, diff- different uh, understanding of their own, uh, I want to say humanity, but humanity is obviously the wrong word in this context. Um, but, but, and, and, and therefore a different teaching perhaps would be, would be incumbent upon them. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating thought experiment outside of the, uh, outside of the idea that, um, you know, wh- whether or not we have any evidence that, that uh, aliens uh, do exist, as it were. But yes, I think just following up on what uh, Salil Sahib has said, uh, you know, uh, one of the attributes of God is his uh, creative attribute. And with his infinite, um, uh, you know, abilities, mm. God will continue to create. So the uh, process of creation is infinite as God is, and God will continue to display this attribute through eternity. So obviously... We are looking at also scientific evidence that suggests that UNICEF con- that the universe continues to expand, mm. and this is not uh, uh, disputed by any scientists who uh, who are you know of sane mind and mm. understand uh, you know the latest deploying of these uh, huge telescopes, which look into light years away from universe, still cannot find the ends of universe and. Uh, there's ample evidence to suggest that uh, there is the, the universe continues to expand. For it is obviously a corollary of that that the life forms will also continue to be created mm. as the universe expands. Yeah. Um, and the Quran is actually very clear on one verse that mentions that uh, God will continue to create and has the ability and the will and whenever he wants will bring them together. Mm. Um, so on that basis, we also say that there might be a possibility at some point in time when we might be in contact with uh, other forms of creation. We don't know what form of communication it will take uh, and when will it happen. But it is certainly true that uh, according to what we believe, uh, when this human species uh, become 
you know, uh, too uh, rebellious and God decides to basically finish off uh, this part of the creation, then it will be replaced by another form mm. of creation that will, at some point in time, perhaps meet us uh, when the transition is taking place. Who knows what? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, those are those are very, very intriguing possibilities, and uh, there's no... There's nothing that can stop us from saying that these possibilities certainly exist. And because the Quran is consistent with uh, the idea that the science actually also agrees with, uh, there is absolutely no ways to no way to dispute it. Um, so I think that uh, I think that remains an intriguing possibility. Although I must say that if the aliens are looking at us, they might find us quite stupid to interact with us. Um, you know <laughs> what the, what humanity has done over the last 75 years. Uh, you know, killing each other off, uh, uh, you know, bombing people with Agent Orange, creating genetic problems, um, killing millions of each other mm. in uh, two world wars and then heading towards the third world war. I think aliens will perhaps uh, be safe not to <laughs> interact with us for now and perhaps uh, wait for another uh, another few years before they make contact. I mean that that in itself is a fascinating is a fascinating idea. I think just just touching on what you what you said there, I I always um really enjoyed listening to the fourth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, um, uh, Rahmatullah. He he always had a, a fascinating response to this question about whether or whether aliens are real, whether we've been visited by aliens or could be visited by aliens um i'm going to play a short a very short clip of of his response to a question is there life on other planets yes most certainly there is life on other planets or other stars or their planets but there is most certainly life there because according to the holy quran such life as we find here on earth, a life similar to that exists elsewhere also, and that life form would come into communion with human life form one day. So re- really reflecting what you what you said, Dr. Aleem, it's, I, think, I think it's really fascinating because, you know, scientists have set out their their stall in terms of an understanding of the size of the universe and the statistical reality that if if life were able to exist on Earth, then statistically it's impossible, um, given the size of the universe and given the number of other planets and given the length of the age of the universe, statistically impossible that life could not emerge um, on another planet and therefore the chance of that life becoming intelligent ultimately is is quite high but i but i guess also you know we it may be that there there, there's um an alien radio program somewhere having the same discussion on another on another planet around another star many hundreds of years away (laughs) (laughs) discussing (laughs) discussing this very topic um and and wondering why we haven't visited them so you know as you you say (laughs) there's there's many many questions within this and many explanations for why we may or may not have been visited by aliens up until this yeah. point but i but i guess it's 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 fascinating for me that islam puts out its store very very clearly in that respect that the possibility of of um alien life is is real and that and that we may well be visited uh, by them or come into contact with them at some point 
uh, during the course of human history. Indeed, uh, I must say that in another clip of his, uh, and you know that he used to be very funny, and, mm. uh, and a very, very uh, uh, deep sense of humor. Yeah. So when somebody asked him almost a similar question, he said, uh, can you tell me what we have done for ourselves so far that we are waiting for you know <laughs> other aliens to come and take part in that? Um, so yeah, I mean I think the question is really um, getting back to the original issue of whether mm. we have fared well and uh, you know would people want to or if you if you and I were in an alien planet and yep. looking at the world uh, would we want to really talk to <laughs> people? <laughs> Possibly, not. yeah, Khalil, your your thoughts on that question? I mean, in in terms of the in terms of the evolution of of humanity, do you think aliens would want to come into contact with us? Would they have would would they think that we might have something intelligent to say? It's interesting yeah. because yeah. when we when we speak about other life forms, mm. I I kind of get the sense that we always do that in the context of ourselves and mm, comparing mm, them mm, to mm, ourselves. Mm. We call them aliens as if they are different to us and in yeah. some way you know we are the most superior life form you know but uh, god's power and god's understanding and his um creation is so infinite that actually you know there, there may be other forms of life that are so different to us that have a an entirely different concept of intelligence that it's even beyond our capacity you know i mean mankind has very limited capacity we can only see what we can see yeah. but just recognizing as it says in the holy quran that there are you know a number of heavens and there are a number of uh, uh addition to death and that you know allah is able to create god is able to create life in all forms mm. everywhere is is really a magnificent concept and it really is worth studying the Holy Quran, particularly chapter, you know, 42, and uh, seeing what God says about the existence of, of life on other planets. Thank, thank you, Khalil. A, a lovely sum up of that uh, of that topic, and uh, an interesting one. I mean, albeit, you know, we, we watch these things on the news and we wonder, uh, you know, to what extent, the, uh, you know, what elements of this are true and, and, and what's not true. But I guess, you know, the, the possibility... Uh, remains open, and I think it's a fascinating discussion from an Islamic perspective as well to understand what what Islam's ideas are on on this idea, on this thought about alien life and and life on other planets, and you know the big big questions of the universe. Um, moving away from the big questions of the universe to something um, both horrific and and again somewhat mundane, and there's uh, I think we discussed this at the top of the program with with Dr. Aleem very briefly. Um, we have had in the in the last week or so um, two really uh, pretty horrific humanitarian challenges that have that have presented themselves in North Africa. And the first was the earthquake in in Morocco, and the second was flooding in in Libya. The the Moroccan earthquake hit on Friday, the September the fifteenth, at at um, uh, uh, 2023 with a, with a magnitude of 6.8 and it struck high in the Atlas Mountains and affected mostly rural villages that otherwise also lack um, adequate services um, 
for for their for those communities. And the official death toll was estimated to be over two thousand nine hundred, but we don't know yet because obviously not all of the bodies have been found. And um, as is often the case with earthquakes, buildings, roads, bridges were destroyed, um, and and some really historical buildings as well. Um, but the response by the Moroccan government has been remarkable. Um, and the government declared three days of national mourning and, and pledged to provide financial assistance. Uh, and the, uh, the the king of Morocco visited the, the areas that were affected. The UN launched an emergency appeal. Aid was brought in. The Moroccan people themselves mobilized. They cleared uh, areas that, that um, had become impassable. They um, immediately set up the sort of shelter and relief um, systems that are required to respond to a disaster of this nature. The flooding in Libya is a, a very different situation, and this happened on uh, Sunday, the, September the 10th, so a week ago now, um, and happened as a result of two upstream dams that burst under the pressure of torrential rains triggered by a hurricane-strength storm. And when we think of North Africa, we normally think of uh, river systems, we think of the Nile, but there are other river, river systems in, in North Africa, and Libya is a is a country next to um, next to Egypt, larger than Egypt itself, has many large rivers, and and obviously some of those have been dammed for various purposes, including irrigation and and for the production of energy. And those dams uh, got overwhelmed by the massive torrential rain and released a huge amount of water. Very sadly, swept through the the port city uh, of Derna in eastern Libya, and caused absolutely horrific devastation killing at least 11,000 people and leaving another 30,000 missing. And, and, and sorry for saying this live on air to, for, for those who, who um, may find this um, disturbing or distressing. Bodies are washing up on the shore even now. And, and obviously there was an immediate response from the Libyan Red Crescent. Um, but um, as uh, Dr. Alim said, there is a, there is a challenge here with, with Libya having uh, become essentially factionalized uh, due to the civil war with two two governments claiming legitimacy um uh, in in Libya itself and and this has significantly hampered the humanitarian response to the flooding um the ability of um international agencies to be able to get and very few aid agencies or journalists have been able to reach the area that's been affected and uh, and whilst the government in Tripoli has declared a state of emergency it's uh, it's it's on the other side of control as it were um, and the and the eastern government is is in control of that uh, that area, and there have been many challenges around um, them being able to to uh, bring in support. And the UN also launched an emergency appeal for Libya, ten million pounds to help with the relief effort. But so far, very few countries have responded um, with pledges to contribute, and and I think that's a really a challenge ar- around the the international understanding of the of the situation in Libya and how one can respond and there's real challenges now around the possibility of waterborne diseases in the area where the flooding has taken place with food shortages medicine shortages etc the sorts of things that we can see and Dr. William just to bring you in first of all and you said this at the top of the program and I think it's a really important point disasters happen um, the response to them is the critical thing um, and uh, I should I should say events happen and sometimes those events can be devastating. The real disaster happens as a result of a, of a lack of a robust response um, and where where local or national governments in country are unable to adequately respond and they require the assistance of the international community, then that becomes an international disaster. 
Um, and it's and it's pretty clear the the stark difference between the response of the Moroccan governments and the response of the Libyan governments to this to the to these um, respective disasters really shapes our understanding of the political situation in in these countries and and uh, what it very sadly means for the for the people in the in the countries who are who are the ones who are affected. Indeed, um, I think that uh, uh, as we have said earlier on that. Um, we need to distinguish between natural events, which always take place, and why those events become disasters. And some events do not become disasters. So, you know, one of the most powerful earthquakes uh, in a, about five or six years back happened in Chile, which was mm. about nine hectare scale, and only one or two people died. Um, if something similar happens in Japan, you would have very, very low level of casualties mm, mm, because mm. Japanese people and the Japanese school system actually prepares children from the very beginning of their childhood to uh, to anticipate the situation, to be ready. And when it happens, then you know you have countries and their systems geared up to respond well, which then uh, takes away the element of disaster. Uh, because we all know mm. as human species these events will always happen and that it's best to be ready for it rather than you know respond to it mm. so i think responses are essentially uh, a sort of a reactive process which happens and then we see all kinds of problems happening within the response because obviously situations become more and more disastrous if you add levels of complexities to them mm. and in this case Libya, the levels of complexities are numerous. Uh, so I would say that part of this event uh, reflects what happened in Pakistan last year, where huge floods uh, because of torrential rains in the northern areas swept the plains in Pakistan and thousands of people died. And there was a huge loss of property. In fact, Pakistan went to uh, Geneva this year and asked for compensation from countries that are releasing more carbon in the air, in the air than mm. than them, uh, because uh, they said that these are sort of reparations for uh, using the carbon part of the uh, you know um, of of, of uh, carbon emissions that those countries have pledged to reduce, and and the more uh, climate change happens, the more we continue to see this sort of disaster uh, uh, happening in every part of the world, and I think Libya is is a very good example where. Torrential rains uh, would have happened. Uh, so, second level is the construction of dams, and in many cases, the feasibility and, and the proper studies of dam construction are not mm. done well. Uh, in some cases, these are done by international financial institutions who want to make a quick uh, money out of uh, creating large infrastructure projects, and this is also borne out by, um, you know, a couple of situations where. There have been evaluations of construction of dams in many parts of the world, and uh, and good neutral uh, observers and evaluators have come out with the fact that in many cases, international financial institutions did not really listen to people assessing the uh, location of the dam, the uh, the high amount of dislocation and the suffering that people go through because of uh, that large construction, and then the subsequent consequences of this, which is one of the things that we found here, we find here in Libya, it might repeat itself in other parts of the world. So that's the second level of complexity. And third one, obviously, as you have said, is the international geopolitical uh, you know, uh, lines of friction that are going on in Libya, where parts of Libya and East Libya are sort of controlled and managed by 
some uh, large western some large western powers who would want to have a share of the oil of libya mm. and then the other part which is uh, sort of backed up by the un which seems to claim legitimacy based on a wider consensus now obviously here the un is paralyzed because you know it is a party to this conflict in the sense that it it uh, sort of recognizes one part of the government mm. um, and does not recognize the other part of the government which is actually backed by some of the other western powers so it is really a disaster upon disaster and as you said uh, you know lots of people are still missing i think there are thousands still missing and uh, access is difficult and i'm worried and afraid that this might actually uh, continue to build and multiply in the sense of uh, uh, in the sense of uh, becoming a larger disaster than it is unfortunately uh, you know there will be let very little amount of coverage in mainstream media and the alarm that has been raised because uh, currently um there is of course other headlines that are making constant um you know push for space in the western media uh and then libya at this moment is inconsequential uh, you know in the sense of not really uh having the kind of uh, power that it used to have at the time of uh, gaddafi but you know also because its resources are distributed already and so i think that unfortunately we are looking at uh, tragedy in making and i guess there's there's a few things in this and and clearly to bring you in here and as you as you said the the challenges in 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 country as a result of the civil strife there and and a lack of good governance and a lack of control by by the government itself in country uh, mean means that um the ability of the government to respond appropriately is is significantly limited i think we we shouldn't forget that 2011 the united nations under a under a un resolution um brought in um a bombing campaign from march through to october of 2011 uh to 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 in order to um change the dynamic within libya i mean it wasn't it wasn't articulated as regime change it wasn't articulated as we must kill gaddafi but the um the bombing stopped as soon as president gaddafi was was dead and uh and the and the simple fact of the matter is that since 2011 libya which was an uh, was and still is an oil rich nation um and uh, but but which otherwise had perhaps not had the opportunity to significantly develop its its infrastructure um be- because of because of gaddafi and because of the uh, uh, because of governance issues um in country since then um it its gdp has dropped since then challenges within the country have have continued and it's it's a bit disturbing isn't it khalil um, it's a it's a very leading question i'm going to make a suggestion instead i i i think it's quite disturbing um but you may disagree that that the international community thought it was it was okay to bring about regime change um through a defined um campaign of of bombing but the the subsequent fallout within libya is squarely put on the shoulders of the libyan people this is all this is all up to them now if they don't fix the problem then it's their their problem not our problem um what we wrought is is uh you know it's a, it's all in the past now it's uh it's more than 10 years ago they've had plenty of time to sort themselves out i, I think you're quite right to raise this point you know and I, I think that the international community does have a part to play in the 
situation in Libya. But what's really disappointing is the difference in response between Morocco and Libya. And one might argue that there is civil strife within Libya and it makes it difficult for humanitarian organizations and governments to assist. But, you know, the international community does what it wants to do and finds a way to provide assistance where it needs to provide assistance, where it wants to provide assistance. And I have to say I'm hugely disappointed with the, the difference in response. The, the UN, you mentioned in your narrative earlier on that the UN had offered, you know, 10 million or so. I mean, I don't think it's the UN that's offered it. They've had a, an appeal for 10 million in aid. And just to put mm. that in context, um, I just, as you were speaking, I just did some quick research and I discovered that between 2019 and July 2022, the expense bill, just the expense bill for MPs in Britain was 90 million pounds. And if you add their costs of MPs staff, that's 400 million pounds. Mm. So that's just on expenses and staff. So that 10 million could probably be covered in around six weeks of expenses for, for MPs in the UK and the UN is struggling to raise 10 million pounds for emergency aid. And I think that that is absolutely shocking. And I think what is even more shocking is that North Africa is surrounded by Muslim countries, Tunisia, uh, obviously Libya is having its own issues, Egypt, uh, South Sudan, Eritrea, there's lots, you know, and, and not so far off, very wealthy Middle Eastern countries. And it is the, the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, of serving mankind and inculcating the spirit of sympathy for others within his followers is such a shining example for those Muslim nations. And it's tremendously disappointing that that illumination that he provided, those magnificent teachings of Islam that are supposed to impact in particularly these situations uh, are not impacting them and are not causing these Muslim nations to set aside their differences and to assist other Muslim brothers, other neighbors. Um, uh, and obviously Libya and, uh, and, and Morocco are both neighbors of these countries. So, so I think that that is tremendously disappointing. And whilst I, I am concerned about the international community's response and you know the World Bank happily jumping in to provide uh, high interest loans for mm. rebuilding, I think the responsibility is very much on on Muslim neighbors to do much, much more. And I hope and pray that they, they do see the light that uh, Islam offers them, the example of the Holy Prophet and pull their finger out. Thank you, Khalil. And just, just talking through the economic statistics there, I think um, you, you raised a, a really valid point about, you know, for, for a nation like the UK, the costs of say helping helping a country like libya people are going to say well you know why why sh why should we it's 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 our money why should we spend it on a foreign nation well how about this for a statistic the eight month military intervention by the uk in libya in 2011 and the costs of that campaign just by the uk and remember it was uk it was france it was um italy it was the united states who were who were all bombing 
320 million pounds is what that eight month long campaign cost in terms of military spending in terms of the bombs that were dropped on Libya 320 million so we somehow thought it was okay it was morally right to do that to spend that money and and yet not invest in a meaningful way in the um, in the support of that country after the bombing I mean that that's that slightly sticks in 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 the throat uh, for me personally um, that that you you can't claim that we should not be in uh, uh, interventional that we that we shouldn't um, get ourselves involved in 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 the uh, problems of other countries um, in in this sort of way when when we are in part directly responsible and to the tune of three hundred and twenty million. Not, notwithstanding the the human cost of uh, of that campaign, it's 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 pretty disturbing. And uh, Dr. Liam, your I mean your thoughts on this? We've spoken many many times about the responsibilities of um, richer nations in terms of their their poorer cousins. And, the, and yes, I think both uh, both you and Khalil have uh, essentially said what I would wanted to say. But yeah. I think it would be very interesting to look at um, the part of the three twenty million dollars that went or, or pounds that went to the military industrial complex. Mm. You know, in Afghanistan's uh, whatever war that was, the war on terror, um, now uh, estimates reveal that the dollars were spent and most of it went to actually three or four large, you know, behemoth uh, international military industrial complex uh, corporations that mm. made money out of it. And I think that Libya was one of the points of series of these interventions, including uh, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria, uh, and then, of course, uh, now uh, expanding that to uh, eastern part of the Europe. I think that uh, we know now very well, and the head of the Ahmadiyya movement has been speaking in his annual peace uh, seminars mm. over the last eight or nine years. He has consistently mentioned the role that the military-industrial complex plays in enlarging and uh, and uh, you know, uh, giving, uh, fire, adding fire, fire to the fuel to basically make uh, money out of uh, out of conflicts. Mm. And you know, the reasons, of course, are given that uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi were looking at creating uh, an African Union that would have traded, uh, you know, uh, oil in mm. sort of dollar in other currencies, and that led to. Uh, an action by the uh, uh, by the Western powers to make sure that the current peg of the dollar to uh, to the oil does not really dislocate itself, because you know the dollar went through a, a depreciation when mm. it was depegged from gold in 1971, and after that to hold its value it was pegged to uh, oil, and so essentially uh, you know uh, it is it is unacceptable for the current financial system, including the international financial institutions that are a part of the global governance, to let that happen, uh, where the dollar gets depegged from uh, from uh, oil. And I think uh, these series of wars or conflicts were sort of fought to keep that hegemony in place. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is ample evidence to suggest that that uh, continues to happen in one sense, uh, with uh, more coming. Uh, it's not over, and I think it will keep happening until we see a very, if uh, you see an emergence of uh, post, uh, let's say, Bretton Woods institution world, mm. which is already in one sense being discussed and happening. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, you and Khalil have already said, and I think it's ex exactly right that uh, 
you know most of the uh, uh, of western resources have been used to uh, make progress on uh, you know how to uh, enforce what they believe is democracy and democratic practices on western eastern part of the world uh, and and uh, not enough in terms of how it can be really practiced in a non-violent way can i just make one other very quick point Please if do. i may Hamad, you know, and that is that, look, you know, Britain as a nation um, is not judged by the size of its land or by the hubris of its words. It's judged by its conduct. And, you know, now that we have left the European Union, which is another it's another topic altogether, mm. it, it is Britain's primary task to make its way, not just domestically, but internationally. And putting its feet forward and saying that we are going to provide leadership in these circumstances is a wonderful way for it to enhance its reputation mm, and for mm, it to create mm, mm. influence, which is one of the most important things it needs in order for it to progress economically. And so I very much hope that our politicians, you know, move out of this small-minded, politics from all parties, a small-minded uh, domestic approach and look at what Britain once was. There was a lot of good that Britain had done uh, during the past few hundred years and takes that example and says that we will provide leadership and that we will provide support where it is genuinely needed. We can do it and we should do it. I mean, I, I, Khalil for Prime Minister is what I would say. I mean, a wonderful Khalil. <laughs> thank you, for, thank, thank you for that because you sum, you summed up beautifully what Britain could do. And and I think it's it's fair to say many people listening will think may think oh we're, we're putting a downer on 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 the UK. I think that when you look at the people of the United Kingdom, you see generous, open hearted people in general. Who, who really want to affect positive change in the world and who are generous with their time and with their money. And I see examples of that every single day. Um, and, you know, we should celebrate the fact that uh, over the, the decades, despite um, challenges, um, the United Kingdom has continued to become a more diverse place, welcoming individuals from, from all across the world. And, and I think a, a huge opportunity for uh, for the UK to really become um, a world leader um, in in that respect and and of effective pos affecting positive change around the world. Um, so, um, uh, uh, I mean, just, I, I, just a byline, Doctor. Uh, just a byline on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, of course, uh, you're, you're speaking from the UK, but I must say that the recent numbers coming out of UK are also very very alarming in the sense of the rise in poverty in UK and of course I, was I think there is a need, for us to, <laughs> a need for us to talk about you know what kind of leadership UK really needs to yeah. actually solve its internal problems in addition to what it can do for other people. Well I think I, I was going to and Khalil I, I don't mean to embarrass you but but you know you put it so eloquently and if we had people like Khalil um, in charge, then I think this country would be in a much better place. And so I'm going to come on to something that Dr. Lee, you, you highlighted for me, and which is the collapse of the social contract in the UK. And so what is the social contract? Well, the social contract is an idea that um, in a society, um, we behave like we are a society. We behave like we are one, which means that if there is um, a, a fellow citizen in the country and they're in trouble, 
then I will help them. That, is, in essence, is the social contract. And it also means that the other side of that is that that when that person is able to help others themselves, then they will do so. And the idea behind it, uh, therefore, extends into the idea of social welfare, the idea of the NHS, the idea of all of the systems that we have in place to try and protect people from falling into poverty, from being devastated by illness, from not being able to find shelter, food, energy, clothing, education for themselves, for their children. And the the simple fact of the matter is that we have now found ourselves in a situation in the UK where that system is falling apart. And it's not me saying this, it's not Dr. Abdul Aleem saying this. There has been from Parliament a cross-party report by the Poverty Strategy Commission. And so cross-party, this includes Conservatives, it includes members of the Labour Party. And they've commissioned, uh, they, they have put together a report and that report reveals that millions of low-income families uh, are living in unacceptable levels of poverty in the UK. In the UK, one of the richest countries in the world. Um, and their reflection on it is that the UK social contract, which is supposed to protect people from hardship, has collapsed. Um, poverty rates have not improved in the last two decades, and some groups, such as pensioners and single parents, have seen their situation worsen. Um, and it and it shows that more people are in in poverty and are experiencing deep poverty, um, and and having having to go hungry. And the number of children living in poverty really beggars belief. And we talk about um, inequality. We talk about social and economic inequality, and and. Um, economic inequality in this country has continued to rise over the last few years. They suggest a solution, and they um, and they su- suggest that that incomes should increase. There should be an increase in incomes uh, for for individuals um, uh, across the country. But that alone is not going to solve the problem. So there's other significant factors such as housing, the cost of housing, childcare. Um, disability, energy, travel costs, and all of these need to be addressed. And and they've given an estimate that it would cost £36 billion a year to significantly reduce poverty in the UK, which could be achieved through a combination of benefits, wage increases, and investments to lower costs and improve services. Um, it, it's, it's all pretty shocking stuff. And Dr. Liam, I guess your point is that whilst we have an opportunity to show leadership across the world, that leadership really starts at home. We present an example of how we wish other countries to behave by role modeling how we ourselves behave. And at the moment for this country, that is starting to become a pretty shocking picture. Dr. Aleem. Indeed. I think, uh, you know, um, recently there have been, of course, uh, satirical um, views on that also. You know, we have... uh, been in the development, um, social development world for the last 25 years, mm. where we have always had uh, people who say, well, I'm an expert in Sierra Leone, I'm an expert in yeah. Zambia, I'm an expert on, you know, <laughs> uh, and I suspect it's time now to say we need experts on UK from the African countries or from Asia yeah. to say, okay, so we are experts on UK and we can tell what UK needs to do. <laughs> Uh, I think part of that has already been articulated by you. I think the UK people in UK are quite capable of finding out what is not right. But I think that um, we have talked about this a bit earlier, and I, I'm sure that uh, Khalil Sahib has more insights to this. 
but I think that there is a problem with, as you said, the social contract and uh, even within the democracy, the whole, the creep of uh, non-representation. Um, I think you can have a democracy which is sometimes uh, lacks and has what I call representational deficits. Mm. And, and that happens when uh, you have parts of population whose voices go unheard. You know, I've experienced this in many parts of the world where uh, a large part of a country, for instance, in Pakistan, you know, about 35 to 40 percent of Pakistan is under 18. Um, and so essentially, if your parliament actually consists of people who are over 18 uh, and there's no real institutional structure to articulate the voice of the under 18, then you essentially are making policies that uh, underrepresent or in fact do not represent the needs and voices of a very large part of the population. Now, I don't know how the, the the demographics of the UK, and we probably would have to do another program on that, but certainly to say that there are, I'm quite sure, voices like the ones that you have mentioned, which need to be heard in the parliament. And, uh, and, and it seems to me that there is a, a dysfunction in the democratic representational system that the UK has now. You know, the UK was known for its... Uh, uh, as a state of uh, as a state that was formed on the on municipal governance and on uh, the beverage model of health mm. uh, that was the basis of the social contract in the uk and both have suffered you know recently birmingham city council declared its bankruptcy um, so essentially what it means that the municipal system that the uk essentially founded itself on is also falling apart mm. and you know about nhs more than anybody else because you are part of the system so I think those two pillars of the state building in UK are essentially have been underfunded and uh, underrepresented in the governance system, and that is what what is the, the price that the people are now paying is essentially manifest in the rise in poverty and other social problems that we see now in UK. Thank you, Dr. Liam Khalil. I'll bring you in at this point, but I think it's it's important that we make uh, one really significant point about about this question. We see politicians at the moment, some politicians saying, um, well, you know, we're spending more on the NHS than we ever have done before. So, you know, that that, that the problem isn't funding. The problem is um, the NHS itself and, and making it more efficient. And the simple fact of the matter is that it's this is long-term funding. This is funding around infrastructure. This is capital costs which have been significantly underserved over the last few decades, and and I'll, I'll explain that in a, in a in a little bit more detail. But I think the example that we have is pretty clear. We see we see crumbling schools. We see schools that have been devastated um, because of um, low quality concrete being used in their construction. But the idea being that those schools would be built and and would only need to serve. Um, that population for 20, maybe 30 years, and then could be a new ones could be built. But that hasn't happened. And that's, that's the challenge that has not happened in the last 20 or 30 years, we have not seen rebuilding of public infrastructure, schools, or hospitals, and it leaves us in a situation where this public infrastructure is now literally falling apart in front of our eyes. And I've, I've heard from many, many colleagues, about the dire, uh, dire state of uh, NHS infrastructure 
uh, around the country. And, and the simple fact of the matter is that you would look at this infrastructure and you would think, gosh, I wouldn't want my child, my family member, to be looked after in a place where the roof is falling in, where there's water dripping through, where, where walls are crumbling. Um, and there's very little that you can do. It costs more to patch than it does to stop and rebuild, which is what is required in many, many cases, as 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 well as a real change in the way that the, the funding happens and a, and a focus on those who are uh, most poorly served by these services. Um, but Khalid, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this question because it's a real thorny political and social issue. Um, I'm hoping we still have Khalil Yusuf Yes, you still have me. You still have me. You still have me. Just, just on um, that question. I, I was just yeah. so, I was just so impacted by your narrative. I was just thinking about how to, how to respond to it. And I probably want to just start um, by saying that you know the difference or the importance of religion is that religion tells believers that they are responsible for more than just themselves. Mm. Not just about the individual. Actually, it's about the collective. It's about society. It's about responsibility it's about even abstract concepts like justice which you can define differently between people but what religion tries to do is it tries to give definitions and examples of that and say look you know you are responsible for more than yourself and the challenge that we have with lots of countries where religion is in decline is that this collective responsibility is replaced with the responsibility just for one's self. So whether you talk about companies that have used substandard concrete in order to increase shareholder value, or you talk about the increasing amounts of money that have been put into the NHS, often to support older people who are not being taken care of by their own relatives, it really comes down to this challenge that in society we really deem our responsibilities only for ourselves and we're not really interested in responsibility mm. for others and so what this psalm says is that uh, not only should you dignify labor and make an effort yourself but actually when it comes to issues such as poverty when it comes to issues such as taking responsibility for your parents or for your relatives or for your neighbors all of these things help society when you have a concept of, of zakat, for example, which m requires you to recirculate wealth. It means that you don't hoard wealth as what often happens in many Western countries. Large amounts of property, land are hoarded by companies. They wait for the market to rise. They build on it. They sell it at a profit. And what that does is it means that there's a lack of availability of land. It means there's a lack of availability of housing. And it means that people can't afford to buy their own homes. Rents become more expensive and there's more homelessness. So, you know, it's very important that we look at concepts. I mean, I'm not saying that Britain should adopt be nice if they did adopt Islam, but they should adopt Islam wholesale. But there are concepts like recirculation of wealth, like uh, collective responsibility, uh, which families should have for each other, like uh, helping each other with charitable donations from larger companies, like making sure that you don't lock up land and assets within the country for the benefit of the few rather than the collective that I think that as a as a government, not just in Britain, but in other advanced countries that are having these problems, 
they should really look at. And uh, I think when, as a society, we work together to try and alleviate the suffering and difficulties of each other, and that is supported by the state, where the state doesn't demonize those people who are poor, who have disabilities, or who have come from uh, other countries, you know, fleeing uh, conflict, then society can change and society can then resolve some of these problems on a collective basis. Thank you, Khalil, and, and um, you know, a, a lovely sum up. And, espe- and especially I mean, uh, important for us here on Voice of Islam, the Islamic perspective and the Is- Islamic teaching on, on this. And, and I think perhaps people don't realize how much emphasis Islam puts on, on this sort of uh, collectivism of, of uh, the importance of the social contract for, for want of a, uh, of a better phrase and how important it is for um, uh, individuals to look out for each other within a, within a society, but with a, with a broader understanding of what that society means. So it's not just the, um, the individuals within your own um, town or, or city or, or nation or country, um, but, but the entire world, um, and that every individual um, in the world, one, one has a responsibility to them and, and to look after them and to ensure that, that, um, uh, that, they, are, uh, that they are well looked after. Um, and I think that's a that's a really important principle and a really important thing for us to for us to end on today. And so we're we're coming up to the end of the first hour of the program. And um, I'd just like to end by saying fascinating discussion. Discussion. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank both of my guests, uh, Dr. Abdul Alim. Thank you. Hopefully, you'll come back on the program sometime soon. Thank you, Dr. Mas, for having me. Thank you very much, and um, uh, always always grateful for your company on a on a Sunday morning. And and Khalil Yusuf, um, uh, th- thank you for your uh, participation in today's program. And hopefully, uh, um, hear hear uh, you uh, again soon here on Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. I'm honoured. Thank you very much. Th- thank you, Khalil, um, and um, uh, and a thank you again to to. Uh, everyone who's who's participated in in uh, the first hour of the program and and helped to bring that together. Um, so we're coming up to the news now, and after the news, we'll have some um, uh, recorded items by our colleagues from Rational Religion. Um, but stay tuned here to Weekend World and the Voice of Islam, and uh, we'll continue to bring you some uh, fascinating radio uh, from Voice of Islam. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. We're now into the second hour of our program on today, Sunday, the 17th of September, 2023. The time is two minutes past 11. And uh, for the rest of the program now, uh, I'm going to introduce our colleagues from Rational Religion, and they're going to be talking about um, uh, atheism and and uh, and uh, I think discussing the, the work of Stephen Fry around around that um, and the, the the challenges I think that that atheism uh, brings uh, for individuals around around their uh, how they live their lives and um, uh, and and their capacity to to feel contented um, and and to be able to progress progress spiritually. So that I think is going to be a really fascinating uh, discussion and, and one to listen out for 
uh, now. But um, uh, I'm going to be signing off uh, uh, now for, uh, for that. And thank you for continuing to listen to uh, Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Uh, we've had a fascinating discussion in the first hour of the program. Um, and if you want to listen again, you can do so on SoundCloud. Just go to SoundCloud and search for Voice of Islam and then uh, look out for Weekend World. And you'll be able to hear the entirety of our back catalogue of programs, but let's let's listen to rational religion now. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. This all sounds so compelling. I think I need to be a part of this. So I'm walking down the street, and I'm thinking to myself, "All right, Hamza, you're a regular guy. You know what I'm saying? Think banker, walk street." little bit of showboating and grandstanding, you know what I'm saying? Not a bad looking cat. I'm all right, you know what I mean? Love the ladies, love my drinking, love having fun. This whole Islam thing, quite foreign to me, you know what I'm saying? Like I grew up in a Christian background, but I wasn't really religious myself. So I'm thinking to myself, Hamza, you have now just become a Muslim tonight. Is this really where you want to go? I mean, this whole thing is full of rules and regulation. These people get up in the middle of the night for prayers and then they do it four times in other parts of the day. It sounds like a lot of hand-holding and a lot of laws. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm not really sure if I did the right thing here. So as I'm walking down the street, I'm comparing it to all of the beautiful things that I read about Islam, about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, this all sounds so compelling. I think I need to be a part of this on the one hand. On the other hand, I mean, what if this stuff is just true? What if this is just like one of the many isms that people get themselves into because of boredom or whatever else they're going through? So right at that moment, I thought to myself, you know what? I looked up at the stars and I said, oh God, if this man is true, please help me understand it, but don't let me be a hypocrite. And I thought to myself, you know, hopefully maybe I just need to read more, just investigate. So I went home. It was late. It was the middle of the night. I thought to myself, you know what? Let me at least take a step. I'll go ahead and try to get up for that early morning prayer. It's like four or five in the morning. Like I said to y'all before, you know, we come home at four or five, but we ain't getting up at no four or five. Unless you got to go to the bathroom or something. But anyway, so I stretch out on the couch and I thought to myself, all right, I'll try to get up for that early morning prayer. So I lay out and before I know it, man, I hear the sound like the sound of a plane when it when it flies too low, combined with like a train. It was like this roaring sound, but it's a voice. And the voice said, number one, preach. There is none worthy of worship save Allah. Number two, preach. There is none worthy of worship save Allah. And it just kept repeating like, like, like vibrations in a tuning fork. That's the best way I can explain it. It was like I became a tuning fork and someone knocked me on the edge of a table. And I just sat there vibrating. Man, I was so taken out. I was so emotionally shaken I just like, I got up, I'm crying, my nose is running, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what has just happened to me? You know, I called up a friend of mine and he's like, don't worry, this happens to people all the time. And then it wasn't until much later 
I continue to study, etc. And then I begin to realize there are Amity Muslims all over the world that have experiences just like this and even greater experiences. And that's when I realize that verse of the Holy Quran where God himself says, Udu'uni astajib lakum. Pray unto me. I will answer your prayer. You see, for me, this is the reason why I couldn't be anything other than a Muslim. Not because there's a distance between God and man, but because Islam closes that gap. And in fact, true Islam, Ahmadiyyat, reunites human beings because it possesses the correct understanding of the guidance given by God to man so that man has that relationship with God. Now, anybody can see it any way they want to see it. I agree. Perhaps it's all subjective, but I can tell you one thing. For me, and for the millions of stories that I hear from Amity's all over the world, I couldn't be anything else. These are the signs of the living God. Udu'uni astajib lakum. Pray unto me. I will answer your prayer. We're going to watch a video from Stephen Fry that I've recently come across. Let's take a look. We tend to set ourselves goals of, oh, if, if only I could live in that kind of a village in, you know, in the south of England, like a quite near a station and nice little house, but not too expensive. And then you get it. And so, yeah, you live in the suburbs. Hooray. Oh, maybe that car, that, that new mm. one there, that Tesla or whatever, then I'll be happy. You don't literally say, then I'll be happy, but there's a kind of sense of that's all I really want. And each of these goals is met, and it isn't it. The line of T.S. Eliot, that's not it. That's not it at all. And, and we go through life thinking, that's not it. There is something in all of us, a whole, a need for connection and love and truth and, and a sense of something beautiful beyond. You're never happy because of your status, because of things you've achieved you happiness comes from somewhere else and of course i've yet to meet anyone who can tell you where it comes from so stephen fry is uh holds a special place in our hearts yeah um because he was formative in the creation of this channel and before we tell you about that story we're gonna let's just analyze what he said there so what did you take away from that so i, I can't disagree with most of what he said yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he talked about... Apart from the last line, maybe. Apart from that was right, right at the end. <laughs> and of course, there's nobody who could have told me possibly what the answer to that question was. <laughs> All right, okay, Stephen. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. I think the key point he's making is that um, he's coming... He's an, he's an older gentleman. I don't know how old he is. Let's just have a look at how, fine, old, it's relevant. how old is he. No, it is relevant. He's 65 now, born in 57. So, I mean, he's... He's an older guy and he's kind of, I think this happens to a lot of people as they get older, that they start to realize that all of those things that they set themselves up for in life, all the achievements and the goals that they had for themselves, mm. none of them, despite having achieved them often, have actually brought them what they sought. Mm. Uh, and it's similar to what we discussed in our last live stream about the Love Songs and Age Philip Larkin poem. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go through that again. Mm -hmm. But um, the key point, I think, is that he, he's saying that we that the the hole in his heart has not been filled by his material uh, achievements, and you know Stephen Fry's material achievements are many. Hmm. I mean, he is one of the most recognisable faces in the Western world, and he has attained a status as 
rightly or wrongly as an intellectual hmm. um and as a and as a comic and an actor and yeah. as a, a cultural icon for the brits in particular yeah which is you know it's just really up there yeah 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 out Absolutely. of all the people yeah so yet despite that he's confessing before the camera there that none of that really brought him any uh lasting contentment and peace of mind yeah um so i think that that's he talks about the hole in the heart and other people have called it a God-shaped hole. So if you remember our interview with David Belinsky, right. he made reference to the fact that there is a God-shaped hole. Um, I think I think he did in our interview, or he, if he didn't, he may have done it in a previous interview I watched of him. Yeah. He talks about the God-shaped hole, and he was quoting, in fact, someone else. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, I've come very prepared with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, But Stephen Fry doesn't want to say the word God. Yeah, you know, but he he gets as close as possible to saying God without saying God. Hmm. He says that we want something which is you know beautiful and uh, uh, perfect, which is beyond us, hmm. right? Which is and and in that expression, he's kind of talking of something which is transcendent. Yeah, right. Um, but what transcendent of what? Presumably material reality. Presumably. Hmm everyday human experience hmm. presumably something which is absolute and fundamental to the universe not something which is incidental and contrived right so what you're saying is that he is he's recognizing that the worldly things which he has gained in abundance which he has achieved so well are not enough and he's thinking well if i've conquered the world in a way he has in his sphere yeah. which is quite a lot which is quite an expansive sphere he has conquered that world but that's not enough. So he's recognizing I need to go beyond the world, something beautiful beyond. But then he says, there is nothing that can, um, there's no one that I've met that can actually tell me that. He said, of course. Uh, yeah. And, and you can almost <laughs> tell there was an, I think, and this is speculation, but I think there was an element of self-deception there when he said that, even in the pause that he gave before that, it was a sense of, um, there was a sense that he was in denial of something. Well, the fact that he said, of course, is almost funny because... Um, she doth protest too much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she she doth protest too much. So he's almost like saying, "Oh well, there's there, I, I'm I'm boxed into a corner because nobody's been able to give me the answer." Of course, right? Yeah. Um, which it's almost like trying too hard to convince people that nobody's ever given him an answer to that question. Yeah. Now, before we then dive into our answer to it, let's go to what Stephen Fry said about eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that, in a video that he did for the um, British Humanist Society, I think they renamed themselves later as Humanist UK. Um, and we'll see what Stephen Fry said at that point about the meaning of life and the purpose of life. Mm. And we'll see how far he's come. Let's have a look. How can I be happy? Some people believe that there is one single meaning of life. They think that the universe was created for a purpose and that human beings are part of some larger cosmic plan. They think our meaning comes from being part of this plan and is written into the universe waiting to be discovered. A humanist view of meaning in life is different. Humanists do not see that there is any obvious purpose to the universe, but that it is a natural phenomenon with no design behind it. Meaning is not something out there waiting to be discovered, but something that we create in our own lives. And although this vast and incredibly old universe was not created for us, 
All of us are connected to something bigger than ourselves, whether it is family and community, a tradition stretching into the past, an idea or cause looking forward to the future, or the beautiful wider natural world on which we were born and our species evolved. This way of thinking means that there is not just one big meaning of life, but that every person will have many different meanings in their life. Each one of us is unique, and our different personalities depend on a complex mixture of influences from our parents, our environment, and our connections. They change with experience and changing circumstances. There are no simple recipes for living that are applicable to all people. We have different tastes and preferences, different priorities and goals. One person may like drawing, walking in the woods and caring for their grandchildren. Another may like cooking, watching soap operas, savouring a favourite wine or a new food. We may find meaning through our family, our career, making a commitment to an artistic project or a political reform. In simple pleasures such as gardening, in hobbies or in a thousand other ways, giving rein to our creativity or our curiosity, our intellectual capacities or our emotional life. The time to be happy is now, and the way to find meaning in life is to get on and live it as fully and as well as we can. So, I mean, they actually updated the animation from when we yeah. uh, responded to it uh, many years ago. Yeah. It was all about us, I think. It was all because of us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's why they updated this soulless animation. Um, so that was, you know, just to break down what he's saying there, he's very confident that you can have meaning and purpose in life from just based on your own kind of whims, priorities, interests, etc., etc. Maybe gardening. it's gardening, maybe it's sculpture. Yeah. Um, Soap operas. Maybe it's waving slightly like these animated heads do. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, you will find, you can find your purpose in that rather than cosmic design being, you know, woven into the fabric of the universe. It's I mean, actually just our whims. And if you follow your whims and your personal preferences, you can find your happiness basically that way. And and how do you how do you find that contrast in, in, a, in a fairly short period of time? <laughs> Ten years. Yeah, because, I mean, in the first video, he was pretty explicit that uh it doesn't matter he was like it really doesn't matter what you do you just end up miserable um <laughs> and you just end up at a place where the contemporary video now yeah in the yeah. contemporary video the, so the first video we showed was like well yeah. it doesn't matter what you do it, it seems to be the case we all have a hole in our heart and it's always looking for something which is beautiful and extraordinary and, and transcendent hmm. and nothing we do none of our status that we achieve he mentioned none of the amb ambitions that we have in our lives none of them really fulfill that hole hmm. and it's we're always left with the sense of longing and, and loss mm. and whereas in this video he's like well if you want to do gardening you you, you get that shovel out <laughs> yeah. um you know if you want to uh i don't know what was the other one sculpture soap operas political cause yeah i mean there's basically he was saying that there are a thousand different ways to be find your meaning depending on your interests in life yeah um and in the first video we show which is his later video actually He's saying that it doesn't matter what you do, you're always going to be miserable. Hmm. Um, so, so what do you think that says about his own journey? Then? I think it says, I mean, we were talking about the evolution of Stephen Fry. I mean, in a sense, I think, to be honest, I think Stephen Fry probably knew that he would be miserable, that they, these things don't satisfy when he made the humanist video. Essentially, yeah. You know, but the reality is he was pushing the party line on the humanist association. Yeah, and front. atheism was, that was, you know, the new atheism was still in, in much stronger force back then. Yeah. And now there's this cultural shift towards recognizing that 
uh, taking meaninglessness as your meaning, um, surprisingly, is an unfruitful approach to life. Yeah, so I mean, they, they, you know, he says, oh, you can have meaning in doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. Really, what he was saying is there's, there's, there's almost an infinite number of ways you can distract yourself mm. from the question of your purpose in life. Yeah. That's actually what he's saying, which is that, and then as long as you can just, you know, keep on the hamster wheel of your particular interest mm. without looking out to the wider universe and asking yourself the big questions, you know, they, you could just maybe just be struck down by a heart attack terribly one day and you won't even have to have considered the real serious questions. Mm. Um, and so that might be able to be you yeah. know, sufficient for your existence. And he began the uh, video from eight, ten years ago talking about essentially deriding, uh, yeah. not, not explicitly, but in a, in a way implicitly, the uh, religious perspective that yeah. design and purpose is, is uh, say, woven into the fabric of the universe and is something that is set for us, yeah. something which we have to discover rather than create. Um, and and what is that from? I, I guess this is we're going to be talking from the Islamic perspective, though. I think in many respects this is pretty pretty shared across yeah. uh, all the major religions. Uh, what is the, what is the Quranic take on this? So the Quranic take is is you know briefly it's not something we discover even hmm. you know, or recognize. The, the purpose of life is actually something we accept. Hmm. You know because the Quran describes itself as a reminder. And it's actually reminding you of what you already know, which he yeah, already explained in the first video, hmm. which is that he's looking for transcendent beauty. Hmm. You know, if you took the word to name God, I mean, that is most certainly one of the attributes of God he has described. Hmm. Transcendent beauty. Hmm. Um, you know, as the famous uh, saying in Islam goes, the Prophet Muhammad's peace be upon him said that Allah says, you know, Allah is, I am beautiful and I love thing, I love that which is beautiful. Allah is hmm. beautiful and loves that which is beautiful. Hmm. Um and so what, in a way, he's doing is he's showing that his worldview is fundamentally flawed, mm. okay? And it's actually fundamentally false. Okay. Um, because if he has a, a worldview which limits him to a way of being which is fundamentally unsatisfying for human beings, then how can that worldview be posited as the sustainable and a sustainable answer for how people should live their lives. Yeah. At a fundamental level, if his way of looking at the world cannot fulfill human, the human soul, the human spirit, the human right. psyche, you might say, then how can we, how can the humanist association continue to have that video up once he said that? So what you're saying then is that his, him saying this now is testimony that the, that the atheistic humanist, uh, basically the atheist worldview cannot satisfy us and therefore is the the wrong is not how we are um it's not natural to us yeah right it's not intrinsic yeah you know the the fact that we actually long for something should be evidence that there is something yeah it shouldn't be evidence that we're deluded yeah like to begin with the premise that our the natural and, and you know he talks about how um, every human being is unique and different. Well, if every human being is so unique and different, why is it that every human being has this feeling of nothingness? And this isn't exactly new, because and that's the kind of thing that surprised me was that, you know, he's saying something which has been known for thousands of years. Like all the kind of wise people in society have been people who've been saying, don't chase material, you know, design. even the Stoics I'm sure he's very familiar with, you know, they, they spoke a lot about this, don't be trapped up in the world. And they weren't like super uh, spiritual or, or religious as such although they had a, a degree of a lineage from Socrates, Prophet Socrates, as we believe he is, peace be upon him. Um, even they said, you know, don't be trapped by this. And all the wise people of every age said, don't be trapped. But he was, it's so strange that he's a kind of font of wisdom or seen as a font of wisdom, but he's, he's discovered this. But the way he spoke about it showed that he has real conviction because obviously it's his life of experience. Yeah. Um, but just going back to what you said about how the, 
there's still this longing. What does this tell you? This this longing that we have for something beyond. What does it tell you? And is that can you? I think we have a quote from from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Yeah, maybe we could get that up on the screen. Can we get that up on the screen? That would be a good way of um, addressing yeah. it. Okay, we got it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, perfect. So, <coughs> so he says, um, I don't know where you've got it from. Starting, what's the first line you've got there? Of the natural. Okay. So yeah, he says, this is in the book Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, hmm. um, which is if anybody wanted to find out what the what the teachings of Islam are uh, and the kind of underlying true spirit of Islam, this is the book to go to. Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, um, the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi. And on page 80, there's a section called Search for an Exalted Being. Hmm. And he says, of the natural conditions of man is his search after an exalted being towards whom he has an inherent attraction. This is manifested by an infant from, infant from the moment of its birth. As soon as it is born, it displays a spiritual characteristic that it inclines towards its mother and is inspired by love of her. As its faculties are developed and its nature begins to display itself openly, this inherent quality is displayed more and more strongly it finds no comfort except anywhere except in the lap of its mother if it is separated from her and finds itself at a distance from her its life becomes bitter heaps of bounties fail to beguile it away from its mother in whom all its joy is concentrated it feels no joy apart from her what then is the nature of the attraction which an infant feels so strongly towards its mother it is the attraction which the true creator has implanted in the nature of man the same attraction comes into play whenever a person feels love for another it is a reflection of the attraction that is inherent in man's nature towards God, as if he is in search of something that he misses, the name of which he has forgotten, and which he seeks to find in one thing or another, which he takes up from time to time. A person's love of wealth or offspring or wife or his soul being attracted towards a musical voice are all indications of his search for the true beloved. As man cannot behold with his physical eyes the imperceptible being, who is latent like the quality of fire in everyone, but is hidden, nor can he discover through him through the exercise of imperfect reason, he has been misled grievously in his search and has mistakenly assigned his position to others. Mm. So, I mean, that probably summarizes this issue mm. and gives the answer to it better than any human being has ever done so before. You know, that, that the name of which he has forgotten is, is a really... Uh almost like a life-changing description yeah it is um and if you think about what the what Prophet the founder of the Ahmadi muslim community is saying is that he's kind of pointing out that right from our birth we have a longing for something beyond us and perhaps as a child it's you know we our horizons are very um are very close to us so it goes to the mother and it goes to, but there's something a natural attraction something beyond yeah and you know what stephen fry said he actually got to give to the guy he is articulate and insightful in many respects um and especially here in, in not insightful i mean he's insightful as to the problem and he's then insightful he... into the depths of his despair <laughs> and he's yeah. and he's placed his finger on it which is that he's looking for something beyond him yeah and this is what the promise i was talking about that there that we yeah. even as a child we recognize that there is something beyond and we want unity with it yeah um and this is all a reflection of the ultimate um the one from whom we are yeah you know that is god our creator yeah who is much you know to whom we owe much greater allegiance than even our parents and that, there's a lot to say about the second humanist video we, the humanist video we, we watched and the first one still which we haven't mentioned or touched upon i mean 
which comes to this particular issue, which is that he said at the end of the first video, he said, and of course, you know, I haven't found anybody to give me an answer to this. Hmm. But as you've very well pointed out, I mean, this is, this is, this is religion 101. Yeah. This is, this is belief in God 101, that the world will not satisfy you. Yeah. And that actually the search for God, who is that? Iman, immanent, yeah. transcendent being will. Um, so that's number one. Then the second thing is, you know, in the humanist video, um, he talked also about the fact that there's no evident design from the universe, mm. that they don't find any intrinsic purpose to the universe. Mm. Um, but this is, you know, a great manifestation of the fact that, you know, there's that verse of the Quran that I'm thinking of, which says, you know, we will surely show them signs around them and within themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of the signs within himself. Yeah. And he's 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 failed to recognize the signs that are around him yeah. of the fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that the universe came from a state of nothingness, the fact that all the laws and constants of nature are finely tuned to an extraordinary degree, which I, nobody has to go into detail. Yeah. I mean, you know, Stephen Fry will know that better than, you know, most people. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that there are these extraordinary signs as to the intricate nature of the universe now clearly designed, not just life is, but the fundamental constants which permit a stable universe to exist. Yeah. Right? So, for example, to give a small... Can you give any small example? Cosmological constant you could throw out or... Well, there's tons. I mean, if gravity was stronger, the universe would collapse in itself too quickly that stars and solar systems and therefore planets like ours wouldn't form. If gravity was weaker, then it would expand out so rapidly that you wouldn't have... Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have stars forming. stars forming, therefore you wouldn't have the higher elements. Uh, and there's a million of these. And, and the balance between those two is... Yeah, well, all of them, all of them basically, especially if you take them together, they, they exist on a knife edge. Yeah. Um, so that's a really, really beautiful what you said there about, you know, the signs within yourself and the signs outside. Because the first, the first video, in a sense, he denied the signs outside of himself. And the second video, the more recent one, he acknowledged that um, he is recognizing something of a sign within himself. Yeah. But whether he truly appreciates it is another question. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, maybe we can introduce Stephen Fry to uh, the <laughs> Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and actually the author of the Quran, just God himself. So what does the Quran say about what is our... <clears throat> what is our purpose what is on this topic? topic? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the Quran is pretty explicit. It doesn't, it doesn't give you, when it comes to the purpose of human creation, it doesn't like give you allegories and nice stories, <laughs> like tries to figure like stories and just, you know, you have to kind of derive it from a complex mm. philosophical principle. It's very, very, very clear. Okay. Mm. Chapter 44, it states, and we created not the heavens and the earth and all that is between them in sport, we created them not but for an eternal purpose, but most of them understand not. And right. in other verses, it explains chapter 51, verse 57. And I have not created the jinn and men, but that they should worship me. Hmm. I desire of them no provision, neither do I desire that they should feed me. Hmm. Surely it is Allah himself who is the great sustainer, the Lord of power, the strong. Ah, wonderful, wonderful verse. And it's a beautiful, take, taking them together, I think, they're very nice because the first one, it says that there is an eternal purpose, but most people do not understand what that eternal purpose is. Yeah. And that the purpose of the heavens and the earth in its creation is not for sport, it's not a play. Yeah, which is kind of, you know, he was basically talking about playing. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in his original humanist video, he was talking about, you know, do a bit of sculpture, do a bit of gardening, <laughs> maybe some frisbee, and you'll be golden. <laughs> yeah, but, and then the second verse, the quote, I, you know, quote, I gave, which is, I've not created the jinn and men, but that they should worship me. It's again one of these, I love these kinds of phrases that God uses in the Quran, 
because they are the strongest grammatical construction yeah, yeah, yeah. for a particular purpose. So if you said, if God said, I've created the jinn men that they should worship me, you might think, okay, well, they, they, that's our purpose, but our purpose could also be other things, hmm. right? Our purpose could also be gardening. It could also be this because, yeah, that's one of our purposes to worship God, yeah. but then there could be other purposes because the verse would just say, I've created jinn men that they should worship me. Yeah. But this, the way it's actually phrased is much more powerful. This is, I am not created to the jinn and men except that they should worship me hmm. that there is an exclusion of all else yeah. besides the app, the purpose that god gives in the same way that the credo of islam is la ilaha illallah la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah there is none worthy of worship except god yeah um again it's not that there is only one god it's that there is nothing except god yeah so and then it goes on to say, I desire them no provision, nor that I, do I desire that they should feed me. You know, the first verse might give the person an impression that God needs us. Hmm. That actually the reason for all this is because God wants some adoration yeah. because he's insecure, you know, that he, he just needs this kind of devotion to him. Hmm. But, I mean, maybe you could explain what the meaning of worship is then and, and actually what the fundamental purpose of life is. Well, there's a very beautiful... Um uh, saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which he reported was, was revealed to him, where God said that I was a hidden treasure and I desired to be known, so I created the creation. And uh, I remember you pointed out something very beautiful to me, which is that, you know, it, if God had a need, he also fulfilled it himself because he he was able to, because the, the criticism may be, well, God therefore needs us. Yeah. But actually he doesn't need us because he, he fulfilled his need <laughs> through yeah. creating us. Yeah, exactly. And in doing so, he exercised his mercy because we didn't exist and now we exist and we're able to find spiritual fulfillment in relationship with God and also enjoy his, uh, his creation in the next life. We'll enjoy um, in the afterlife and the nearness to, to him, to God himself. Mm. So like, it's all kind of pure mercy and bounty that comes from God mm. in fulfilling his own purpose. Mm. Now, Abd, you know, worship in the mm. Islamic sense, uh, doesn't just mean, um, physical worship. In fact, physical worship, as we understand it, kind of the, the prescribed prayers, that is a, um, sense it's a it's an ark or a ship for the for the underlying spirit which is uh, a way of refining yourself in a way that is pleasing to god and whereby god will then come and reach you and develop your relation his relationship with you yeah. so it's basically just a vessel worship physical worship that we do is a vessel for us to to meet god yeah, but it's absolutely necessary because, you know, this is something that the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in this book, I've just finished reading Beacon of Youth, points out, hmm. which is that the reason, for example, that Christianity has no real fundamental, um, what, what, well, why churches are being hollowed out from Christians, hmm. why Christians... Being bought by Muslims, why, to why, why, why Christians, yeah. So why Christians, for example, even if they, do they have to turn up once a week hmm. to do their worship and they can't even do that. Whereas hmm. Muslims are filling mosques five days, or five, five times a day often, hmm. right? multiple times there, or at least every Muslim should, you know, generally tends to go to the mosque at least once a day. So, you know, the reason is, is because they don't have a physical form of worship hmm. because in rejection of the Jew, Jew, um, Jewish teaching yeah. and the, um, the extremism of the Jews at the time of Jesus's appearance, which is that they emphasize the physicality and the ritual so much, uh, they understood Jesus's message of, of focusing on the inner spirit as a rejection of 
entirely the ritual or entirely the physical movements. Hmm. And as a result, the Christians have discarded all kinds of concept of uh, a prescribed physical motion. And the consequence of that is, is that if you don't have to physically do something, hmm. eventually you stop doing the inner spiritual turning to God as well. Yeah. Because the physical motion actually preserved... Hmm. It preserved the opportunity for you to turn to God in your spirit. Yeah. Every Muslim has this experience that we will go and we will go to the mosque and pray. And we won't necessarily, we, we might, or, or at home, and we might finish our prayer and feel like, oh, well, I didn't really do that as well as I could. Hmm. Right? I didn't really focus on God as well as I could. But it provided you the opportunity hmm. to do so. And the next time you then do it again, the physical worship, it provides you a fresh opportunity to perfect your worship. Yeah. But if you don't even have the physical prescribed postures, mm. you don't have the safeguard. You don't have the guardian of your worship. Mm. It's gone. Mm. Uh, and so the physical worship is fundamentally necessary. And this is why I think, you know, a lot of Christians, they kind of deride physical worship. They think of it as kind of like, you know, uh, beneath them. Yeah. But they're more philosophically enlightened, mm. right? That they kind of can just turn to God and have like a, a, a spiritual reconnection with God. Yeah. And they fail to appreciate that the, the, that the soul is tied to the body hmm. and the body uh, determines the motions of the soul. Yeah. You know, so when you walk humbly, you feel humble. When you walk arrogantly, you feel arrogant. When you laugh, you feel happy. When you pretend to weep, you feel sad. And the Quran talks about this, says walk, walk on the earth humbly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and again, this book, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, explained this beautifully, that the physical postures are there to actually create the inner change and turn towards God so that when we kneel or prostrate, we are kneeling and our soul kneels and prostrates to God. The funny thing is, is that I think the Christians in a sense have, have recognized this with the evangelical movement. So they have then kind of put back in kind of created, fabricated rituals through music yeah. and through all of their kind of songs and dances and all this. Because I think they maybe recognize there needs to be something there that's substantial, which, you know, you can gather people for and there can be some kind of movement. Yeah. Unfortunately, that creates a kind of artificial heat, yeah. which is not real spiritual connection. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, but it's an interesting that they that they have potentially recognized that. But you know, worship in Islam is is you know, this is what we've been talking about is prayer yeah. and the physical form of prayer and how it contains the spiritual prayer. But worship also has other aspects. So, you know, when you truly love God and you truly believe that God is beautiful, then you also try and adopt the attributes of God in yourself, hmm. right? And you actually try and reflect those qualities. Hmm. And in a sense, that is that is an aspect of worship. It's a part of worship when you truly try and become like, uh, try and reflect God's attributes in yourself to whatever degree that you can. Yeah. And in fact, in, in a way, kind of, all of the things in in uh, in the commandments of God, if you follow them, they can be they can be a type of worship in themselves because you're submitting them you're submitting yourself and your entire character to God in that. So worship is actually something which is totally expansive in Islam. It is not just the five daily prayers, although that they are so substantial. It is something which can extend beyond those five daily prayers into actually everything that you do in your life. Because if you do it with the intention of pleasing God and of furthering your relationship with God, then it becomes a means of, 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 of connecting to God, which is the essence of worship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the, if you look at Surah Al-Baqarah, the second chapter of the Quran, and it describes the qualities of a believer at the beginning of it, um, I believe it's the second quality it describes. I may have got that wrong, but it says that, you know, those who establish prayer and then it goes on to say, and spend out of that which we have bestowed upon them. Hmm. The key point here is that it, it's not that people always take that to mean charity, hmm. that they're bestowing, that they're spending out of that which God has bestowed upon them in terms of money. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't say money. It says that which we have bestowed on them, which means intellect, 
emotion, feeling, yeah. uh, time, uh, all, all these kinds of things. Uh, they're all very important, fundamentally important. And, and actually God expects you to spend out of all of them. Yeah. Um, for his sake. So it, it, Islam doesn't require word that, and that is all part of your worship. Yeah. So it's, it's not just the physical worship. It's actually every aspect of your life attains a sense of meaning and purpose, um, because it is all becomes devoted to the one who created you. And that devotion manifests as seeking to benefit his creation fundamentally. And the Quran also talks about that when it says, never shall you attain to righteousness until you spend over that which you love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now there's one thing I just want to quickly clarify before we move on, which is that we talked about in this verse where it says men and jinn. What is just briefly, what is, what is this jinn thing? Does that mean ghosts? What does that mean here? A, a Jinn is, you know, misunderstood term uh, by Muslims broadly, and and the honest answer is is that um, Sunni Muslims, for example, consider jinn to be, you know, energy spirits, hmm. you know, that are um, some are good, some are bad, paranormal, basically. Paranormal. Yeah. They basically describe them as paranormal phenomenon. There's no reason to do so. The Ahmadiyya Muslim perspective is pretty straightforward. Jinn simply means that the root of word. From of which jinn is derived as an Arabic word, which means hidden, that which is hidden. Hmm. So that's why you get jannah, for example. Jannah is described as that which is hidden because it's described as the treetops. You cannot see the ground yeah. and the soil from that the which sc- is hidden, that which is covered. Right, Majnun exactly. Means madness. Majnun means madness. Covering of faculties. Exactly, because madness covers the faculty of reason. Majnun is from the same word. And then you also have the fact that you have, um, uh, you know, women are also described in the Quran as jinn, uh, not in the Quran, in Arabic literature as jinn because they are hidden, they're veiled from society. Hmm. typically because they wear the veil um so jinn simply means that which is hidden and and in terms of unseen unseen so it refers to that class of people who are unseen now who are the class of people who are unseen the queen celebrities uh extremely wealthy people who are the the real unseen are just the super rich that you don't see you don't see (laughs) exactly (laughs) so the quran addresses shareholders of banks correct because (laughs) you know people don't people think of them as they're actually uh, they are they are in social terms a separate category yeah you know they live in a different planet because they live in a different planet because they have unlimited wealth they can do what they want they want to be in dubai one day and they want to be in canada the next day they can just go on their private jet and move yeah right they they can eat what they want they can live the kind of lifestyle that they want entirely Mm. they are not constrained Mm. you know even by some simple things as tax laws you know by tax jurisdictions so the Quran recognizes that there is a class of people who are who are not the the hoi polloi the ordinary people yeah exactly so jinn and ins ins means the man the, mm. the ordinary common man um it's important also because um idea god often uh uh the people among the ins take people amongst the jinn to be their gods mm. to be their protectors in society yeah um, and so God is actually making, drawing a point, which is that he is the God of the jinn as well. Yeah. You know, the jinn ain't on a class with him. Yeah. Okay. The jinn are created beings just like the ins, the men. So that's s- simple. I wanted to read another verse, if that's okay, about yeah, yeah. the nature of this life. Can I just also say jinn also therefore covers other forms of creation, which we may not know about or, you know, in a different planet, so whatever, but yeah. it is, it is expansive, but for the primary application of the Quran, which is to to mankind, it means the people that you see and the people, uh, and, uh, and the people that you do see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's this verse, another verse of the Quran, which kind of, it summarizes, why don't you read it? Well, you've got it there as well. Well, I mean, uh, this is, I think, something which is, you know, I think Stephen Fry has experienced this. 
because if you think about kind of the the riches which he has accumulated and the pride that which which he's which he which he has to a degree for being such a, a big person in society uh he's also seen that it's it's kind of um it's dry there's nothing real there so the grant talks about this in chapter 18 says and set forth for them the similitude of the life of this world it is like the water which we send down from the sky and the vegetation of the earth is mingled with it and then it becomes dry grass broken into pieces which the winds scatter and allah has full power over everything so the life of this world is like the water which we send from the sky and veg- it mixes with the vegetation, the crops, then it becomes dry grass broken into pieces and the wind scatter it, which is a very beautiful kind of description of, uh, of, of the life that we lead. You know, people are famous in one, two generations, and then they're essentially forgotten apart from a few fans for maybe another two generations. Then they're basically lost to history. Mm. All of their kind of riches eventually blow. Many of them kind of lose them. They blow away. They're tied up in divorces or inheritance, you know, whatever it is, they can lose their money. And they had, they experience these highs and lows, which are trials from God and themselves. But the beautiful thing about a connection and a, and a real relationship with God is that it's with you wherever you are. And you could be poor man living in a hut, and you can have that uh, and you'll be richer beyond, you know, Stephen Fry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, potentially you could argue the good, the best position to be in life is if you have that, that, that relationship with God and you also have, you know, um, the goods of this world. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing per se wrong with that, but it becomes meaningless unless it's, unless it's actually part of a spiritual package. Well, I would say that the key point here is that the, the similitude of the life of this world, it applies to, when the world is not utilized for a higher purpose. Hmm. So, you know, we don't believe that a person who use, takes money and then uses it in the way which pleases God, hmm. that doesn't become dry grass, which becomes yeah, scattered. Absolutely. That becomes an action which fulfills its purpose. Yeah. Right. So there's a very, I love this. You pass the trial. Yeah. I love this particular hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He saw a goat and um, it had been sacrificed and all the meat was taken from it and the only meat the only part of the goat that was left was the head Mm. and he walked by and he said to his companions everything is saved except the head (laughs) so i I love that because it's an inversion yeah dependent on a view which looks at it through the purpose yeah 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 right so for, for from the from the view of the of the of a worldly stance everything was lost except the head yeah yeah from the spiritual perspective, everything was saved except the head because yeah. the purpose was fulfilled for that animal. Yeah. Right? So that's a wonderful... <laughs> so much wisdom in that. So stupid. much wisdom. You could just <laughs> po- ponder it for days and you just, you'd just you still be getting more pieces out of it. Well, I mean, how do we apply that to our own lives then? <clears throat> so, you know, you've got your job, you've got your money, you've got your time, you've got your family, relationships, whatever it is. How do you apply that if you're, if you're a believer? What does, that, what does that mean to you? How do you, how do you live that life then? I think that you always have to make explicitly every intention uh, has to be for the sake of God. Even if it be your job, even if it be making money, you have to be thinking about what is it, what am I going to do with this money? And you have to say to God, I'm going to do this and this and this with it. Hmm. Because if you don't fill it with an intention for God, your ego will fill it and you'll fill it quickly. Nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum and your your own uh, sense of self will fill... um, that the intention for which you're doing something. Hmm. So if one is trying to seek the world, one has to be very careful how one, how, how you do it, I think. Uh, hmm. You have to 
approach it with a great sense of caution. And you have to be explicit in your mind as to why you're doing it and for what purpose is it going to serve you. Because in reality, from the spiritual perspective, it is better to not have wealth, uh, for example, um, if one isn't going to actually use it in the right way because it's going to become a burden on your neck on the day of judgment as to how you how you discharge this duty yeah how does that relate to zakat and the name zakat so you why don't you explain okay so i mean i was just thinking that zakat is a well, what is zakat for the ordinary zakat for, is for, a you um, may not know zakat is a um it's a tax essentially on it's a marginal wealth tax that is that muslims are supposed to pay mm. and it's money which goes to the poor and the people in difficulty in society yeah. and it is typically levied at 2.5 percent on kind of wealth that was unused over a certain amount that you need to survive on so you can understand today as a marginal wealth tax essentially and it's called zakat which essentially comes from the the root of the word is purification it's this idea of when you purify something so the tax which which god has said you should pay on your wealth he has told you why you do it in the name itself of the practice hmm. that this is something whereby you can actually purify your wealth and whereby if you give this portion which actually ultimately isn't that much for the sake of god it is something which can purify the whole right yeah, yeah. this this is essentially the, the way of purifying the whole thing hmm. um and in a way you know what you're talking about is you can pay zakat on everything in your life through your intentions and how you intend to use it and how you do use it yeah you know do you spend your time at least a portion of your time you know remembering god or for the sake of creation and if you do so then other aspects of your time will be blessed and you can probably apply that to every as different yeah. part of your life yeah and that is the kind of the beauty of the spiritual outlook is that it is something which pervades everything in your life and everything suddenly then becomes imbued and enriched with meaning yeah Whereas Whereas if you're an atheist, and we've talked about this before, if you're an atheist, that meaninglessness, which your outlook, you know, which is inherent in the atheistic outlook, just pervades over everything. And, and it just washes over everything such that anything that you do, no matter how good you think it is, no matter how nice you, you think it is, no matter what you think it will bring you, it's ultimately meaningless. I remember the Quran talks about that he has created, God has created us for an eternal purpose. Yeah, It's not a limited purpose. He specifies yeah. it's not for sport because because sport is all limited. Yeah. This is an eternal purpose, and that purpose is to worship God yeah. and to actually have a relationship with God. And you do that through explicit worship and also through treating the rest of mankind and the creation of God in a, in a, in a goodly manner. Yeah. So the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he kind of uh, refers to this emotion that Stephen Fry has mm. outlined in the first video we play. I wonder if you want to... Yeah, so I mean, uh, no, I want you to say this. This is this. You gotta go for it. Okay, so he says, is in the the periodical, the Muslim Sunrise from 1953. Hmm. Good find, Omar. Um, <laughs> Not writes, sure I found it originally, but okay. I'll he writes. He writes. No doubt, God gives, and it's really applicable to Stephen Fry, which is why it's relevant. Hmm. It says, no doubt, God gives some people a goodly share of concentration of mind. Hmm. These people strive to attain various objects political, educational, and cultural, and as a result of continuous efforts, they gain success in their objectives and attain to peace of mind as well. But this peace of mind can be compared to the pleasure which children derive when they get toys. They get this peace of mind not by the achievement of the high objects of their life, but by forgetting them. They fall victims to the intellectual, to intellectual opium. Their brains feed intellectual opium to them. They do, not ha they do have pain but cannot feel it. Feel it. 
Yeah. Which is just incredible. I, I just want to, I just want to read that last bit again. So they, they get this peace of mind, not by the achievement of the high objects of their life, but by forgetting them, they fall victims to this o o intellectual opium. So they have the pain, but they cannot feel it, which I think is a warning to intellectual people in particular, because intellectual people can take pride in their intellectual, um, achievements and their intellectual aspirations. And in a way, they've just got more advanced forms of toys of everyone else. If you're a bit of a, what's the word? Dullard, is that a word? Shows I'm not in that class, clearly. You know, if you're someone who's not particularly smart and you're kind of, you know, impressed by shiny things, maybe you'll go chasing those shiny things and you'll be trying to get the latest car or the latest phone. And that's your kind of, that's, that you think may be the, the purpose of your life. And the intellectual person may look down on that and say, I'm going to figure out, you know, what is personal identity? That That's really, that's my thing. That's going to be my, that's going to be what I contribute to this world. Um, but if that is kind of your, your purpose alone, then it is essentially just a sophisticated toy, which you're, which you're toying with, yeah. if you're actually divorced from real truth. Um, so it's kind of a warning, I think, to intellectual people not to fall prey to that because ultimately, like Stephen Fry is actually saying, you know, and so many intellectuals, so many philosophers have had this experience. Many have ended up killing themselves despite their apparent intellectual achievements because they realize it's still meaningless. Mm. Like they, they, they figure out, they believe so much and they, they, they do their best to get to what they think is the truth of things. Obviously they cannot because their whole, whole outlook is skewed, but they do make intellectual progress in, in various ways, great scientists. And they, they still, they're still just as unhappy as the person who, you know, spent his whole life trying to get a Ferrari and then got a Ferrari and realized, oh, okay, it's just, just a Ferrari. It's not, it was, it was Matt more. Damon, I think, who said it really nicely about his Oscar. Do you, I remember you told me about this. Yeah, thing. yeah. He said, he said, he got his Oscar, he was like 19 for uh, Goodwill Hunting. And he said, thank God I didn't, I think he was, uh, he, I think he put it in his toilet or something. And he said, you know, uh, he's looking at it and he said later to his mum, thank God I didn't spend my whole my life chasing this because... It's just a prize, you know, the high of the winning it goes down, you get off stage, you go to the after party, you come home, you got the prize, and then the next day you carry on living your life. Yeah. You know, the effect of these things wane. Yeah. Um, so whoever you are in society, it doesn't matter because we've all been created by God and our purpose is actually all the same. Yeah. And if you've been blessed with intellect, then don't make that blessing into a trial for yourself and mm. distract yourself, but use it for the sake of of God's creation and use it to advance your relationship or to, to understand God better so that you can advance your relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, for, especially for intellectual people, they find it much harder sometimes to f come to God because it becomes an idol for them. They, their own intellect. Their own intellect becomes yeah. an idol for them. And they, they can't get, because all around them, they see that they are <laughs> superior to others. Yeah. Yeah. They find it <laughs> impossible to recognize the fact that their superiority over others is like a person who has three pennies compared to one who has one penny <laughs> look yeah. before a king who has an infinite treasure yeah you know you don't go to the king with who has infinite treasure and start boasting of the fact that you have three <laughs> pennies and, and your mate's got one yeah yeah because you look like a moron <laughs> yeah. right because you know it's a meaningless thing to even talk about yeah, yeah but but this is people are so wrapped up in their comparison with other human beings they forget that we're all equal before god you yeah. know your intellect compared to somebody else is is like the intellect of a fly compared to that of an ant yeah. <laughs> to a human. Yeah. A, a greater difference. 
Yeah. So it's actually born out of a failure to recognize the tr- the true reality of God. And, and, and if you reflect, this is one of the blessings of science and, and modern advancement, that if you really reflect and do a little bit of learning about how intricate basic things in the universe are, mm. you know, how complex simple organism structures are. Well, you you're an ITU doctor. I mean, you must have learned tons of this for physiology. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you did a medical degree as well. So, I mean, uh, but you don't need to be a, uh, you don't need to be a medic. You don't yeah. need to have studied a degree in human physiology yeah. to be able to look up the fact that this little fly that's flying around in my face is actually extraordinarily complex. <laughs> and quite annoying. <laughs> and quite annoying. Drosophilia. Drosophilia. <laughs> um, <laughs> the basis of like all of human biology. Biological <laughs> advancements, philosophy. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you don't have to be some great intellectual who's done degrees in this. Mm. You know, it is so complex, um, biological organisms, that when you then really try and perceive how complex and how advanced and how beyond of beyond that being must have been who created all this, mm. it serves as a fantastic way, a guidepost. But it doesn't serve as a guidepost for Stephen Fry for some reason. Mm. Maybe we'll give it another 10 years and he'll have evolved a bit further and he'll start oh, to... Oh, maybe dip, he'll join us in the, in the studio, God willing. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Fry, you are most welcome to join <laughs> us in the studio. We'd love to have you. We have another camera. We could put you right there. and We, we can, can get, even get a chair. We can even get a chair for you. <laughs> I'm sure we can get that in the budget. Yeah. No, we, we, we've, got, we've got chairs over there. We've got it all sorted. Just come over. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, and, and there's something else which strikes me, which I think is a, a problem of intellectual people, is that I think when they when they see the people rushing to prayer, they think they're quite simple. And some of them may well be quite simple people, <laughs> but actually they've gone further than the great intellectuals if they recognize God. Yeah. Because they recognize that actually the truth is fairly simple. Yeah, obviously we haven't been created for no purpose. Yeah. Obviously there's a reason we're here. And yeah, probably all the religions of all the major cultures, you know, they're probably roughly right. And <laughs> I'm actually going to, you know, devote myself to this, even if it's just hedging my bets yeah you know rather than devote myself to memorizing qi or something but of course nobody's actually provided that answer to stephen fry no yeah no no one except for everyone. of course no one apart- everyone in history essentially yeah every single hu- yeah exactly i mean he's he's a person of immense intellect and you know from a kind of academic standpoint and a person of immense historical knowledge undoubtedly yeah you know he should know better than anybody else yeah um what the lessons of history are and what the different cultures of history teach us um there's a beautiful Quranic verse which ties this question of purpose together with the question of suffering, mm. uh, which is, you know, pretty much the only argument atheists actually have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was wondering no, no, if you could go for it. You sure? Okay, so the Quranic verse, chapter 2, verse 156 to 157, it states, And we will try you with something of fear and hunger. So this is God speaking to humans. Mm. And we will try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and fruits of labor. Mm. But give glad tidings to those who patiently persevere, who, when a misfortune overtakes them, say, surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. So how does this tie into the question of purpose and, and what's its role? Well, because I think if you think about, you know, the the opening line of that about we, we will try with something of, was it fruits and, and we will try with something of fear and hunger so fear of losing things, hunger of not actually having those things, and the loss of wealth, the provision that you have. To get things. Yeah, lives, so the lives of those that you love, and also your faculty of life and your health, and the fruits of your labor. Mm. That all these things which Stephen Fry has been talking about, that these are things which people try and get, and they realize that they're nothing, ultimately. These are the things that ultimately also are things that are taken away from you. Inevitably, whoever you are in this world, mm. you're going to have trials, you're going to have suffering, you're going to have difficulties. You're not, no one is immune to this. 
you know, even just aging, you're going to have the problems of aging, you have your parents aging and dying, and you're going to have relationships that break down and you're going to have, you know, wealth that, that, that fades away. No one is immune to this. And God is saying that we will try you no matter who you are, you will be tried via these things, which you take as your God, <coughs> but give glad tidings to those who are patient, to those who are steadfast. And these are those who, when a misfortune overtakes them, they say, in the lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun. This is what Muslims say when someone dies. And it means, surely to God do we belong and to him shall we return. And the reason why we have been instructed to say this is because when we lose something and when we suffer, it reminds us that that thing is not eternal. That thing was always transient. And to have, we should never put ourselves fully in that transient thing. Hmm. Rather, that thing was also came from God and was the creation of God. And God is the one who is eternal. Hmm. So it's a reminder that don't put yourself in these temporary things. And that we shall return to God. Yeah, don't. Yeah, absolutely. We shall return. We to are God one of well. those things. Absolutely. That's going to go as well. Well, we have come from God. Yeah. And we are going to go back to God. And everything in our life has come from God and goes back to God. Hmm. So we're going to come here. Things are going to come into our lives. They go back to God. They're going to return. And then we're going to go back. So ultimately. And we will be one of those trials for somebody else who loves us. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And ultimately, the prayer that we're taught to, you know, uh, to say reminds us of that, that we should only attach ourselves truly in our heart of hearts to God, because he is the only one that will actually be there forever. That is the only eternal source of stability and joy mm. is your relationship with God. Mm. Um, so, you know, what Stephen Fry was talking about kind of is he's experienced this. Yeah. He's experienced this. Yeah. But the, the step which he hasn't taken, it seems, is that he hasn't said, okay, well, all of this stuff isn't actually he has said all of this stuff isn't my purpose but he hasn't recognized that this should also this should then take you to that which is eternal yeah the great beautiful beyond yeah he knows what it is i think he knows what it is because he can't not because he's intellectually too smart not to know what the no, answer he, is no, but no, he's he, in denial about it so he no, doesn't no, no, he's recognize smart, it. he's smart enough to can to, to hide it from his from himself yeah well everyone knows like you said that it's the quran is a, a vicar it's we know in our heart of hearts even if you haven't got any degrees in your or deaf and dumb, you probably you probably recognise something there. Yeah. You've been listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam on today, Sunday, the 17th of September, 2023. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.